everybody. How you doing? And welcome to the John Riley Project. It's Monday. We're kicking off the week. How y'all doing? This is a podcast all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We broadcast every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 2 p.m. We're live streaming. We're really would love to get your thoughts and comments. Feel free to type them in. We'll read them on the air. You know, today we're going to talk about Amazon and the union vote. We're going to talk about um, Jeff Bezos, and we're going to talk about justice. And I, I'm hoping that justice can kind of be the the theme that we weave through this podcast conversation. You know, we do this every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at two, and. I'll tell you what, I mean, it takes a great deal of effort to kind of figure out what in the heck I'm going to talk about each time. This is episode number 223, and I I don't want to give up. I want to keep going because I have a lot to say, a lot to share, but I also love the discussion. When I'm always looking for things to talk about, I love local issues. And, you know, we've talked a lot about local issues here in my hometown of Poway. We've talked about, I mean, there's some interesting things going on now. We've talked about some of the development on Poway Road, but there's some internal conversations about affordable housing and zoning laws, which are kind of a hot button for some of our local friends here in the hometown of Poway. But, you know, Amazon is... Uh, has a big warehouse here in, in the city of Poway and figure Amazon's been in the news. So I guess we could talk about Amazon and we could call that local. <laughs> um, but as I go through these, I always try to find, you know, current events, kind of hot topics that people are interested in. And I try to weave that, weave it into uh, essentially a higher calling, a higher purpose, a, a more, a bigger idea, if you will. And really today, we're going to get into justice, which I think is it plays a big role in how people are judging Amazon and judging Jeff Bezos. And, and we can kind of get into that. So that's kind of our game plan for today. Again, we welcome your thoughts, your comments on the live stream. Feel free to, to type them in and, and join us in our conversation today. Um, before we get started, um, I do want to just give a couple of quick shout outs. Number one, Catherine Cloward, who has been my guest on the podcast multiple times, is coming out with a book about Father Joe. And I, I have one of the advanced copies here. I'm showing it here on the live stream. Um, this is the book, Father Joe, Life Stories of a Hustler Priest. And I'm just starting it. And, and in fact, Father Joe is going to be a guest on the podcast on Friday. Can you believe that? That's a big time for me. So um, anyways, I just want to just give a shout out to everybody. This book right now has just been released today on the um, uh, the Kindle version has come out today. And right now it's number 19 on Amazon's hot list on, for Kindle. And we're trying to get this up to number one. So if you're interested in Father Joe, if you support Catherine Cloward and, and the good work she's doing, and again, remember, she's been on this podcast a number of times, I just encourage you to go out and buy the book. Um, the Hustler Priest, Father Joe, and uh, get the Kindle version. And let's try to bump that up from number 19 to number one. So again, talking about some local issues, Father Joe. And, and then by the way, Catherine is also coming out with the uh, the children's version of the book that kind of comes out and it's called Father Joe's Six Golden Seeds. So really looking forward to diving in on this in the next few days as I get prepared for our Friday conversation with Father Joe. Um. The whole other topic I want to just kick off the podcast before we dive into Amazon and Jeff Bezos and justice and a lot of those topics, 
I just want to give a big shout out. How about the San Diego Padres? Something to be excited about. They're starting the season seven and three. They've got the second best record in all of Major League Baseball. That's terrific. Um, Joe Musgrove throws the first no hitter. I mean, the first no hitter in Padres history. They've been in a team for what fifty two seasons, and then finally the local boy does good. And you know, Grossmont High, San Diego County ball player, and he is the one that breaks the curse of the you know the the, the no hitter or the the no-no-hitter streak for the Padres. So good on you, Joe Musgrove. Good on you, Padres. Um, I enjoyed the games over the weekend with Texas. You know, they're getting ready to play Pittsburgh today at 3.30. They've got a four-game series. And then after that, the Dodgers are coming to town, and it's going to be fabulous. Hopefully Tatis is going to be able to come back. I mean, he's already taking swings, taking grounders. I think he has a good chance to come back. But how about, man, Victor Caratini? I mean, his leadership and um, base, basically being another coach there behind the plate. I mean, he's been great. Will Myers has been off to a great start. Jake Cronenworth is just so mature, um, just so so rock solid as a player, so versatile. Uh, Machado had the big home run yesterday. In fact, the, the pitching staff threw a, a shutout yesterday, so two out of the three games against Texas were shutouts, and one of them was a no-hitter. Hosmer's been uh, been playing well, and then, you know, Jace Tingler, the manager, is doing a great job making his lineup, moving him around. He's been very flexible. We're seeing different players at different positions to give different guys days off. So I've just been really impressed. I mean, granted, they should have won at least two of three against the Giants. They kind of they pulled up short on that. But I'm just really, really encouraged. And you know, they took a bit of a setback. Um, Morhone, you know, it looks like he may have you know, for, what do they call it? Forearm tightness. It's usually a bad sign. That's usually when you hear that. The next thing you hear is they're out for Tommy John surgery. So let's hope that's not the case. Let's hope they caught it early enough, but they're going to have to make some adjustments. But I, again, I'm just fired up and I'm really happy. After we do this podcast, after we wrap this up, I'll head back to my office and um, put the Padre game on and, and upload the audio version for all the podcast platforms and then get back to work because I got work to do for my business, for my customers and uh, got a big day still ahead of me. But thanks for joining me and thanks for joining me on this podcast where let's get into everything with Amazon, Jeff Bezos. We'll talk about the union vote. We'll talk about corporate taxes. There's been a lot in the news with Amazon over the last two or three days. And it's just, it's been very interesting. And let's start off with the union vote. And if you weren't following the news, you know, there, you know, of course, Amazon is not unionized, right? And there's been a lot of controversy about Amazon and treatment of employees and how much they're getting paid. And of course, the, the union movement is trying to build up their ranks, get more of these manufacturing companies, or in this case, a, a distribution supply chain company, getting them unionized. There's a big push for that. And Amazon's the top dog. So they actually got organized and put together a vote for a union at the facility in Besmer, Alabama. Which, gosh, if you're going to try to unionize an Amazon shop, you think they would have picked a blue state. But they did it in in Besmer, um, Alabama. And what was amazing is, is that it was a landslide to not have the union. And I think this caught a lot of people off guard. How could this be possible? Because they had to get a a significant number of the vote of the employees to want to have the vote 
But then when the vote happened, it was 738 wanted the union, 1798 were against the union, and that was only 29% in favor of the union. I mean, it's just remarkable. It's just amazing. Now, again, I, I encourage your thoughts and comments here on the live stream. So by all means, please join in and let's make this a bit of a dialogue. But it's very interesting to me because there are, you know, of course, a lot of companies that are out there that pay only minimum wage. And we can you know, say maybe they're more egregious offenders, if you will, depending on how you see this and how you see potentially the topic of justice and as it applies to workers. But Amazon already pays its employees $15 an hour to start. So the average wage is much higher than that. And that's just for the warehouse workers. Of course, the people in the corporate offices are making a heck of a lot more than that. But they also offer benefits on day number one. And so it's interesting how Amazon is such a target. It used to be Walmart was the target, right? But now that Amazon has kind of become the number one company, now they're the target. Now Bezos always has a circle on his on his back and, and everyone's going after him. But Bezos is a very interesting character because he's learning to play the game. And by raising the minimum wage for his workers, in many ways, he kind of shields himself from a certain level of criticism. I mean, can you, you could imagine that if he only paid the federal minimum wage in the state of Alabama, I assume there's no, is, does Alabama have a state level minimum wage? I don't know. But if it doesn't, the federal minimum wage is only seven twenty five an hour. And if Alabama adds anything on top of that, it can't be more than a couple of bucks an hour, right? So actually, in the whole scheme of things, workers at Amazon in Alabama are probably paid pretty darn well compared to a lot of other kind of low-skilled jobs in Alabama. I mean, it's, it's no wonder that they didn't want to unionize. They probably figured, hey, we're getting a good deal as it is, right? And, and when you unionize, you know, the, the union is a double-edged sword. I mean, in some cases, well, let me just say up front, I don't have a problem with them unionizing if they want to unionize. Not a problem. Um, you know, but at the same time, a business doesn't have to necessarily negotiate with the union. I mean, in a free market, workers can get together and try to negotiate as a group, but also in a free market, a business can decide how they're going to negotiate with that group. But of course, that's not how union laws are set up. The union laws are set up that it makes it very difficult. The management has one arm tied behind their back when they have to negotiate with the union. So it's no wonder that Bezos didn't want to have a union. And Bezos and his team were, were, you know, delivering their propaganda internally, talking about the downside of the union. But some people are saying that that was brainwashing. But on the other hand, a lot of pro-union people were doing the exact opposite and pumping up the union and why the union was important. But unions are a double-edged sword, right? Unions are really good if you're a very low productivity worker, right? The unions reward the people at the bottom, in terms of productivity, the lowest productive of the workers or the least productive of the workers. And because it kind of carries them, right? It kind of gives them a wage that maybe they may not necessarily deserve. And on the other hand, if you're a kick butt, highly productive worker, sometimes unions can penalize you. Because if you're a highly productive kick butt worker and you look over your shoulder and the, the slowest guy on the team is making the same money as you, I mean, that can, again, that cuts both ways. The union works great if you're the, the, the least productive, but not necessarily if you're the highest productive person. And unions 
again, again, I have no trouble. If you want to unionize, go for it. But unions obviously are going to try to raise wages. I mean, that's kind of the whole angle, right? But when they raise wages, what happens? Well, it ends up squeezing other jobs out because it increases the price of labor. And so the business reacts and the business makes adjustments. In some cases, the business is going to pursue automation at a higher at an accelerated rate. So when higher higher paid jobs are created, that squeezes money out of the co- company that can't be deployed to pay other workers more. And so what they usually do will sometimes cut staff in order to be compliant with whatever the union contract is. So unions are an interesting thing. In, in many ways, they're helpful. In many ways, they can cut the other way. And so, you know, but that's private unions, and that's usually what we think of. But public unions, of course, are something very, very different. Now, here on the live stream, we already have someone chiming in, and it's our good friend Pete Neald. Pete said, that was my experience back in the day. I resisted joining the Steelworkers Union until I had the job and average incentive pay I wanted before I joined. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, again, unions can be good. I mean, my mother was a teamster. Okay, so she was a bit of union worker and, 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 you know, unions help, you know, get higher wages. They help get greater benefits, but that always comes at some cost. There's always a trade off, right? The money doesn't just come out of thin air. Other people are going to be affected by having to pay people more. It's just kind of how it works. So it's you have to see that there's it's not all upside. It's ultimately a trade off. Pete Neal says, once I joined, I was in the union. Even while in the Navy, I was still in the union. Okay. Yeah, it's it's interesting. But, you know, unions in the private sector have been on steep decline. And our progressive friends, our friends on the left, are dismayed by this. They want to see more union activity. They think unions are being crushed by uh, by corporations and by greedy corporate owners and shareholders. And Well, you know, corporate owners don't want to have unions, but at the same time, employees can unionize if they get organized. Amazon gave it a go, but the vote, the the workers ultimately said they didn't want to do it, which to me was incredible. It was a very interesting piece of news, but unions in the public sector are a very, very different animal. And we've talked a lot about this on this podcast, especially as it pertains here in Poway to our Poway Unified School District, because, you know, there they have the teachers union. They also have the um, Poway, what is it called? The Poway School Employees Association, which is essentially a union of all the non-teachers, you know, so the administrators, the custodians, the um, the IT staff, right? They're essentially another, they, well, not essentially, they are another union. And then there's management. And management, even though they're not really a union, they actually compensate themselves at the same rate of increase as the teachers union. So the management has sort of indirectly unionized in a way. But in the public sector, I always find unions there are a different animal because unions there, what what happens is, is that there's a quid pro quo relationship between the elected official and the union members. Like if you are a school board member and you get the endorsement of the teachers union, that's a very coveted endorsement because teachers are generally thought of, you know, in, in, from a 
very high position. People are sympathetic to teachers' needs. And if the teachers endorse that candidate, that's a feather in that candidate's, uh, in the candidate's hat. But then what does that candidate do? They turn around and give, you know, quid pro quo, they give those teachers more and more raises, greater benefits, more attractive pensions. And we see this sort of incestuous relationship that is very different than a union in the private sector. And then for us as taxpayers, we have to foot the bill. Um, whereas in a private sector, you know, if Amazon unionized and let's just say it re- re- resulted in higher wages for employees and in turn higher prices on goods, mm-hmm. we might say, you know what, I'm not going to buy at Amazon. I'm going to go to Walmart.com or I'm going to go to the Walmart store or I'm going to go to Costco store or Costco.com and I'll buy there. But in a it, when government employees are unionized, a lot of times we're just stuck. Right. I mean, you have to literally like move out of the city. And then even then you move to another city and it's kind of the same situation where the government officials will do that. And then at the same time, if you are, let's just say, hypothetically, you are a parent and you have children in the school and you say, well, the heck with this. I want to switch my kid to another school. But then, excuse me, then they block you from doing that because they make vouchers illegal. So it's all the game. I've talked about this whole notion of a game in a lot of these podcasts where everyone's, well, if you're, if you're savvy enough, everyone's playing the game to win, but I'm trying to play the game. Hopefully you're trying to play the game. Hopefully you see it as a game, because if you don't, I can assure you that other people see it as a game. And if you're not effectively seeing that way, they may use you as a pawn in their game and sacrifice you in order for them to benefit. And we see that a lot. And in public unions, that's the case. And so in public unions, we're seeing now, we'll hear Poway Unified, massive overspending, (laughs) um, massive uh, deficits. We've seen um, cases where the pensions are just outrageously generous. They overpromise far more than what the pension fund can deliver with far rosier projections. And they do that. They overpromise on the pension funds in order to get that highly coveted endorsement of those unions. And and what ends up happening is now it's pushing a lot of these government entities into deficits. We're seeing that now in the city of Poway, partly because of employee costs are going up. Employee costs are by far the, the largest expense that government institutions have to pay. And if their pensions go up to a point where the government goes into a deficit, then who has to pay for that? It comes right back to the taxpayer. And it makes you wonder, you know, see see how it works. Like in in the case of in the private sector, if the costs get too high, you can just buy from someone else. But in a public sector, you can't. I mean, so that's kind of the, in my opinion, the corruption of a lot of of these political endorsements that are garnered from government employee unions. I think it's a a level of corruption because of that quid pro quo relationship. Um, But at any rate, I, I, I was, again, I was surprised that the Amazon, the Amazon um, union vote failed. Maybe you might've thought differently. I think we're going to, we haven't seen the end of this. I think they're going to keep coming back. Um, But I do think that if you are going to push for more unionization, you think they would have picked 
I don't know, like Target or some other large retailer or large company that doesn't even pay $15 an hour. You think they would have picked some company that's really paying, you know, minimum wage as low as they can go. That might be a better target. But I think they pick on Amazon because Amazon's the top dog and they pick on Jeff Bezos because he's the richest guy. And again, it used to be the Walton family got all the scourge and Walmart got the scourge. Now it's Amazon. The, you know, the, the focus has shifted. The crosshairs have shifted. And there, I think we're going to see more of them. Um, so again, we're live streaming. I invite your comments and thoughts. But the vote for the union at Amazon, again, to me, it was very interesting. Um, less than 30% voted for the union. But that wasn't the only piece of news involving Amazon over the past few days. And the other one was the, the uh, Jeff Bezos, you know, of course, the owner of the founder of Amazon, the largest shareholder of Amazon, the richest man on the planet, apparently, if you were to you know value all of his stock holdings. He came out and said that he supports Joe Biden's call to raise the corporate tax from 21% to 28%, the, the federal corporate income tax. And he also supports Joe Biden's call for this $1.9 trillion infrastructure deal. And you think about it and you're like, why in the heck would Jeff, would Jeff Bezos support that? Now, sometimes some people say, well, you know, it's uh, he, he's got a lot of trucks on the road and, you know, he wants infrastructure too. And he needs ports because they're importing all these imported products from you know, Asia, you know, from a lot of other places around the world. And yeah, I get that. But I, don't, I tend to look at it more cynically. I, I don't know how you feel about it because Jeff Bezos has, I mean, he plays the game, right? That's what I was saying. He, he's been playing the game in many cases. He's been scourged, criticized, raked over the coals because Amazon didn't pay any federal income tax for multiple years. And people were outraged. And Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were coming after Jeff Bezos and coming after Amazon. And there's been calls to break up Amazon and calls to break up Google and all the other you know tech companies. So I think in a lot of ways that Bezos has been supportive of this, really from a PR perspective. He wants to look like a good guy for a change where, frankly, I think he already is a good guy. I mean, Amazon to me is one of the greatest companies ever invented. I mean, I, most of the gear that I use on my podcast, I ordered it on Amazon. I just went click, click, and then it showed up on my doorstep in a few days. And the prices were great and the quality of the equipment was great. And Bezos is lowering costs for people all over the United States. What a wonderful convenience during a pandemic when you can't really go out. Instead, you could have it delivered. And then completely innovating and transforming the way people shop to the point where it's had a lot of you know, negative repercussions in the brick and mortar world. But really, those are just customers making choices. And customers love buying from Amazon. I love buying from Amazon. Companies that are manufacturing products love selling through Amazon. I mean, to me, Bezos, in a lot of ways, I think is a hero. Bezos has innovated and created this technology platform that has improved the lives of people all around the world. 
But he is constantly criticized, mostly because he's the top dog, right? He's the richest guy with this extraordinary company. People love to tear the big guy down. I mean, a lot of times I think people look at rich people and they say, well, he, the reason he's rich is because he must be a lying, cheating SOB, right? He must be making money unethically. He must be cheating the system in some way. And so we need to tear him down. And you see a lot of people that they might not say that explicitly, but you know they mean it. And some people will say it explicitly, especially as it comes to taxes. But Bezos and Amazon are just following the law. The fact that there have been years when they haven't paid taxes wasn't their fault. They just followed the law that government enacted. And what's interesting is, is that the reason that Amazon has been able to avoid taxes many years. Now, keep in mind, last year they did pay tax, and I'll explain that. But on the previous years, they didn't. They went like three years in a row where they didn't pay tax. Well, there's a reason for that. One of the reasons is the fact that they took their profits and reinvested them back into the company. They expanded. I mean, like here in Poway, they built a brand new warehouse. They reinvested their profits back into their company. And it used to be 10 years ago when we were coming out of the Great Recession, it used to be that companies were sitting on large piles of cash and they weren't reinvesting the, the money back into the company and they were criticized for it. Like Paul Krugman, you know, the um, economist that writes for the New York Times, he was constantly criticizing large corporations for not reinvesting their money. Well, now Bezos is. And not only is he investing it in his people to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour for his employees and paying benefits on day one, he's also buying all this technology, investing in a lot of this automation equipment, robotics, that makes the system more efficient, which, by the way, that money is being spent with other companies that provide these robotics equipment, that provide um construction material to build large warehouses. He's spending that money and that money is cascading through the system. He's doing what large corporations were criticized for not doing. He's actually reinvesting his profits, which end up lowering his taxable profit amount, which ultimately lower his tax bill. But yet he is condemned for it. It's interesting. Now, the other part of it, the other reason why Amazon has largely been able to avoid taxation at the federal level, the corp federal corporate income tax, is because on many years, they had huge losses that they can use to offset their taxable income in the current year. So I'll give you an example. Is let's say one year they make, I'll just keep the, make the math easy. They, they um, lost $1,000. I know it's a ridiculously low number, but let's make a bigger number. Let's just say they lost $10 million in one year at Amazon. The next year, they made $6 million. Some people would say they need to pay their fair share of taxes on that $6 million profit. Okay, I get that. But the previous year, they lost 10. So over that two-year span, they lost, in this hypothetical, $4 million. 
Well, if they're losing money net overall, then there is no income to be taxed in the first place. So that situation has played out where there have been many years, especially in the early years, where there was huge investment into the company. That's why their stock price is so high. So many people bought in stock into that company. They took those dollars. They reinvested it into the business. They were losing money hand over fist, but they knew down the road they would eventually be profitable. So when they have all of those years where they're losing hundreds of millions of dollars, once they become profitable, well, those losses offset the profit. And so it'll be a while until they become get into a position where they can fully realize the full profit that they bring in. So that's not an unrealistic rule, in my opinion. In fact, frankly, it's a moral rule. That if you have previous years of losses, you should be able to offset that against your current profit. And that's what Amazon has done. But yet they are scourged. They are, they are hated. They are universally looked upon as some evil company. And you see a lot of you know, anecdotal cases where they treat their employees poorly. But at the same time, over 70% of their employees at this warehouse in, in Alabama voted against a union. Then it makes you wonder how badly do they really, how badly do they treat their employees? They already pay them fifteen dollars an hour when the minimum wage is way less. They give them benefits on day number one, where many companies don't offer benefits at all. And if they do, you got to wait ninety days until you qualify. So again, Bezos, I think he's playing the game. Now, never mind. I want to get into this because, and we're going to all get to the notion of justice and fairness. This is where all this is going, because I think this is important, because um, I'm not here just to <laughs> just to rant or to praise Amazon. But Amazon, by the way, did you know last year for the fiscal year 2019, so that would be you know what they paid in 2020 taxes, they actually had a federal income tax corporate income tax tax bill. They paid $162 million in federal corporate income taxes, where in the previous years, I think 2016, 17, 18, they didn't. And that's where people will say, well, Amazon doesn't pay taxes. But that's not true at all. Amazon already pays a ton in taxes, even in those years where they didn't pay federal income tax, federal corporate income tax. They still paid international corporate taxes. They still paid payroll taxes. They still paid gas taxes. They still paid state and local taxes. In fact, in fiscal year 2018, when they didn't pay federal corporate income tax, they still paid over $1 billion in taxes. And yet people say they don't don't pay taxes. I think people don't understand the reality. They're not looking at this through, they're not really understanding what the real truth is. And besides the fact that Amazon is just paying what they owe, yet they are the one that are demonized. I mean, if you're upset with a tax law, then you should be upset with your politicians. They're the ones that created the rule. Amazon just follows the rule. But last year, Amazon paid $162 million in corporate taxes, but they had $13.9 billion in profits. So really... They only paid 1.2% of their profits. Sounds really low, right? It is really low. I mean, if we could pay 1.2% of our income in taxes at the personal level, that'd be great. But what they're doing is they're just playing the game. 
based on the rules as they exist, which they didn't create. Now, I'm sure they lobbied for those rules, and they're not alone. But thus, those are the rules. And they've been able to offset previous year's income, and they've been reinvesting their money, buy more capital, invest in people, invest in like the big warehouse here in Poway, which I know a lot of people here in Poway don't like. It's huge. It's, it's an eyesore, frankly. They better build some trees and landscaping around it at some point. But they are reinvesting in the business. Now, what's also interesting is that in 2019, I did the math on this, they had $13.9 billion in profit, which is a ton, right? But they had to over $280 billion in revenue. So their profit margin is actually less than 5%. Some people think that these corporations are just, you know, 30% profit, you know, something outrageous. Amazon's less than 5%. You look at a lot of large, mature corporations, you know, they have, they have to face the same competitive pressures on pricing as everyone else. And yeah, they have resources that they can use to buy at a lower price. But in the end, it's rare to find large corporations that are paying double digit percentage or actually have profit that's more than double digit percentage of revenue. Usually profit for these companies is very lean. I mean, even when you're buying uh, gasoline at the at the service station, the profit that Exxon Mobil makes on a percentage basis is way lower than the percentage that goes to the government in the form of taxes. I don't know if people realize that either. Um, but anyways, Amazon. Yeah, they're already paying taxes. I mean, they paid over 267, well, in 2019, they didn't pay federal corporate tax, but they paid 276 million in state tax payments, over 1.1 billion in international tax, and they paid 2.4 billion in payroll taxes. Um, And then that doesn't even count like what Jeff Bezos pays as a person, his individual tax return. It's funny, sometimes people sort of conflate Bezos and, and, and Amazon as one thing. And they're often the same people that insist that a corporation isn't a person because <laughs> it's not. A corporation isn't a person. But Bezos has his own personal income and he files a personal tax return and he pays personal income taxes. That makes sense, right? So it's interesting, but... Who, let me think this through. I've said this before on previous podcasts. Who pays for corporate income taxes? Well, of course, the corporations pay, right? That, that large building, that behemoth building where the corporate headquarters are and those people in three-piece suits and the bean counters, that corporation, they pay. As though the corporation is some entity that you can say they pay. But a corporation doesn't pay taxes. They never do. Even if a corporation has a corporate income tax, ultimately the people are paying that tax. People are the one that always pay the taxes. So in some cases, well, you could say customers are paying the tax. Customers pay corporate income taxes because that's where the corporation gets the money to pay the tax. They get it from their customers. So a certain fraction of the price that we pay for goods and services is to cover their tax bill. Who else pays taxes, corporate income taxes? 
Well, remember we said they, we talked about earlier, there's a payroll tax, right? Payroll tax, I think, for Social Security, I know we pay 16 point, excuse me, 6.2%, and the corporation matches that. And I think we have a similar one. Is it, what is it, 0.65% for Medicare, I think? And, and the corporation matches that. Now, some would say the corporation is paying that matching amount. It's one way to look at it, but mostly, most times people understand that that really is paid for by the employee in the form of lower wages indirectly. And that's true with, with corporate income taxes too. When corporate income taxes are paid, that means there's less money available in the corporation to pay the employees. So many of them are potentially penalized by getting no raises or less raise than maybe they deserve because of the corporate tax uh, code, because of the corporate tax rate. And then, of course, the shareholders pay. And those are people too. You might say, oh, those are just rich people. But not necessarily. I mean, it could be a retired couple that saved their money and, and now they have, they have a 401k or a pension and now they're 68 years old and they're starting to collect on that. They worked all their life for that, saved it, put it aside, or their employer helped them put it aside. Well, their shareholders, they have to pay the tax. It's not always just some, you know, evil rich guy that's twirling his mustache and like looking for ways to game the system, to lie, cheat, and steal. People pay taxes. So um, it's interesting um, when we get to this, but I think the main thing I want to get to in this whole line of thinking is like, why in the hell would Bezos support this? Why would he support raising the corporate income tax from 21% to 28%. And by the way, why, and I think I already said this, but why would he want to raise the minimum wage? Well, maybe, yeah, maybe there's a PR aspect to this. Maybe, you know, the infrastructure helps him. But really, if you think about it, this just puts pressure on his competition. Because he's already paying his workers a minimum of $15 an hour. But his competitors aren't. Walmart's not. Target is not. Lots of other manufacturers, distributors, but especially retailers, they're not paying $15 an hour and benefits on day one to start, but he is. So what he's saying is when he says he supports a minimum $15 an hour wage, he really means he wants that on the other guy because he's already paying it. So he wants to put pressure on his competition to raise their cost of doing business and to squeeze them, which puts him in a better competitive position. The same thing is true with with income taxes, with corporate income taxes. You might say, why in the heck was Bezos supporting raising the corporate income tax from 21 to 28%? Why would he do that? He's a rich guy. The rich guys want to, you know, keep their money, right? And yeah, they do. Just like you want to keep your money, we all want to. We all want to pay the least amount in taxes. So why would Bezos voluntarily say they should be taxed more? Well, he already has an army of accountants and lawyers. They're going to play the game. They're going to find all the special rules in the tax code, maybe some that his team lobbied for or other people lobbied for, but they still exist. And he's going to play the game to pay the least amount in taxes where a lot of his competitors may not have the resources that Amazon has and won't be able to play the game as effectively. And then when those competitors have 
profit, they're going to see a larger chunk of that taken away. Where Amazon is already minimizing what they pay. And then if they do have to pay more, and it probably won't be that much more, they can afford it. But a lot of their competitors can't. And you might say, well, yeah, Target can afford it and Walmart can afford it, sure. But can a mom and pop company afford it? Because, you know, if they are incorporated, if they have an S corporation or an LLC corporation, they're going to see their taxes go up. That's part of Biden's bill. So the classic example is the the toy store in your local city. If they haven't already, have, have they've all, if they haven't already died due to the competition in the marketplace, this is just going to put one more nail in the coffin to make it harder for them to compete with someone like Amazon. And then if they happen to be, let's just say, a large corporation, a C corporation, well, every competitor of theirs is probably smaller than Amazon. So they're going to get squeezed too. They're going to get squeezed where Amazon can afford the squeeze because they're playing the game. And these other companies may not be able to play it as effectively. So I think we find that that when Jeff Bezos is up there saying, yeah, I support raising the minimum wage. I support raising the corporate tax. It's like a PR thing. He's trying to show that he's an altruist, but he's not. I mean, he's in it to win. Don't blame him for that. Now, the other part of it is, I think, is he's probably trying to have this positive PR. So it looks like he's supporting Biden because there are Democrats like Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and others that want to tear down Amazon, tear down Google, tear down Zuckerberg and Facebook, tear down big tech, break them up. So I'm sure part of this is, is he wants to curry favor and be looked upon as a good guy in the eyes of government. But he can accomplish all of those things. He can accomplish positive PR, looking like an altruist, supporting Biden's plan and being looked upon as, you know, aligned with Biden, you know, minimize any negative PR because he already pays his workers $15 an hour. He can play that game. But in the end, you know that Amazon is going to pay extraordinarily low percentage in taxes because they always do. And he's putting these, he's supporting these rules in order to affect his competitors and make it more difficult for them to compete and creating even higher barriers, barriers of entry for new people to enter in. It's a way that the rich are able to essentially build a moat build walls around their in, their business, their industry to make competition more difficult. And that's what they do. They use government as a tool to accomplish that. But it does make you wonder, I want to get on this topic here. Again, we're going to talk a little, get into justice here. You always hear the cry, they should pay their fair share. The rich should pay their fair share. Amazon should pay their fair share. We hear that all the time, right? Well, what is the fair share? Do they ever define it? No, they never do. What's fair? What is the fair amount for Amazon to pay? And how is that different than what someone else should pay? What's fair? How do you assess that? 
what's fair? And then what's their share? What's the appropriate share? And why is it different for different people? If it's, if it's different for different people, then is it fair? Is it fair that, I'll just make up some numbers, one person pays 5% and another person pays 25%. Is that fair? Is that their fair share? I don't think it is. I, I don't think it's ever defined. I think it's like a political football that these guys use to zing the others. I think Bernie Sanders loves talking about it because it's a way for him to zing corporations and the rich, but he never defines what it is or at least ever justifies why his recommendation is both fair and a proper share. They just use that terminology as a weapon. And they they do it from the perspective, from their angle, it's justice, because they see that Amazon was paying zero in federal income taxes. Yeah. So they got to pay their fair share. They don't they think it's unjust. But never mind the fact there are a lot of individuals that don't pay federal income tax. In fact, almost half of federal income tax filers, individuals, not corporations, individuals, almost half of them pay zero federal income tax, 0%. It's like, remember when Romney ran in 2012 and he made a comment that was recorded? He was at like some closed door private engagement. Someone recorded it and he said in front of the audience, he goes, I already know that 46, 47% of the people will never vote for me at all because they don't pay federal income tax. So they'll never vote for him. And it sounded awful. It, it was He was raked over the coals in the media and social media lit him up. But he was right. Rough, and and that's, that percentage is still, you know, roughly speaking, true today. You know, somewhere around 45 to 50 percent of federal income tax filers pay no federal income tax. So are they paying their fair share? How could they? They're not paying anything. Just like Amazon was not paying a federal income tax. Now, never mind the fact they paid state income taxes and payroll taxes and, I mean, gas taxes and everything else. But what's fair and what's fair share? It's just never defined. But it always you always notice is that with rare exception, no one ever says, I want my taxes to go up. Almost never do you ever see that. Now, Bezos is saying that to look like an altruist, to to boost his PR. But almost always, when you see tax proposals, it's always tax the other guy. Don't tax me. Tax that other guy, that freeloader, that rich guy, that whatever, but never me. That's what we always hear. And they think that's just. People say the other people aren't paying their fair share, but do people ever look inwardly and say, am I paying my fair share? I think most people assume they are. But how do you know? How do you know what your fair share really is? I mean, we don't know. It's a completely kind of, it's it's like a voodoo words. It's, it's not defined and it's used as a political weapon to zing the other guy. Now, what, and what, now let me, I'll break this down. What is fair? I mean, what is really just? We're talking about justice. What is really fair in terms of a fair share? Well, right now, 
we have a progressive income tax code where not only do the people that make the most money pay the most, and there are some exceptions, but we also, the people that make the most pay in higher and higher percentages. That's why it's a progressive tax code. But is that fair? I mean, you could say that rich people need to pay more because they're rich and they use resources more. Okay. But that could maybe be proportional. But do they, if, if someone is only paying 10%, is it fair that someone else pays 18% or 25% or God forbid in the Eisenhower era, 91%? What was the highest marginal income tax bracket back in the 1950s? It was like 91%. How in the hell could 91%, I don't care how you define fair share, how in the hell can 91% be considered fair share? I, I don't I don't see how that could be just. I mean, you're only keeping about 9% of what you earned at that level in that bracket. I don't know. I mean, it, it's 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 nuts. Now, I always think that if if there is an income tax and we could debate whether there should be an income tax or not, but if there is, to me what's fair is that everyone pays the same percentage. That it's a flat tax. And just to pull a number out of the air, we all pay 10%. That would be fairer. That we're all basically treated equal. We pay proportionately. And frankly, if there was a flat tax, you wouldn't have cases where rich people were paying zero. Flat tax would essentially solve that problem. But in order to have a flat tax to be truly flat, you'd have to eliminate all the deductions and withholdings and shelters and and everything else. So to really make that work, you'd have to eliminate like the deduction on mortgage interest, which is like the the holy grail of guarded um, interest deductions and all the others. If you were to truly make it so-called fair, if you were going if you assuming you had an income tax as the mechanism, the best way to do it would be just a pure flat tax, no exceptions. But of course they'll never do that because the federal government wants to give special favors to this group or to that group, sometimes to special wealthy interests, sometimes to coveted middle class interests, and in other cases to the interests of the poor. So that meanwhile, while we're playing the game, the politicians are playing the game to try to stroke the right voters to keep them in power. That's why our federal tax code is like, God, I don't know how many, 70,000 pages of special rules and exemptions and special favors for special interests. Is that fair? Is that their fair share? I don't know. Probably not. Because the whole system's a cluster. And here's another angle to this. Let's say this goes to the notion of fair share. Let's say that there was a family and they had like eight children. Oh my God, that's a lot of kids. <laughs> but that happens. I remember when I was growing up, there was a family and, and one of the children was in my class. He was one of eight. That was unbelievable. Even here today in our city of Poway, I know of some families. I don't know if they have eight children, but they have got a lot. Maybe more. I don't know. There's some families that have a ton of kids. I think it's part of their culture. Sometimes their religion has influence on that. Just the way they want to live. They enjoy a big family. You know, good on them. Well, let's just pretend you had eight kids. All eight of them got to go to school and they all go to public school. 
first through eighth, maybe kindergarten, first through eighth, and then high school. You could argue that that family is putting a significantly higher burden on taxpayers than a family that only has one child or like our family only has two or some families that have no children or a single person has no kids. So what is their fair share? If they have eight children and they're going all going to public schools, what is their fair share? You would think it would be eight times greater, at least the education portion of it, than a family with one child, right? Right? But that's not how it's done. In fact, the system works in the opposite. It does the opposite. It incentivizes more children. You get more child tax deductions for every kid you have. And those deductions are becoming more and more aggressive. It's part of the reason why 47% of the people, roughly, don't pay federal income tax in the first place, because there's all these special deductions just for them. So then you end up with people that have lots of kids that use public schools that pay very little or no income tax, maybe at the state level. We're talking now state level. But at on the other hand, there are families that have no children, and yet they're paying a lot. What's fair and what's their fair share? So the whole thing is just, is it just? Is it, is it justice? Is it really fair? That, so that's politicians, if they're smart, if they're a good politician, they will call out this justice angle, this fair share angle, because they're arguing it on a moral basis. That's why I think AOC, I, I really like her. I don't like her policies, but I like her and the way she goes about fighting the fight. She makes it about morality, about doing what's right, doing what's just. And that, that angle, that morality angle gives her greater leverage and greater influence. Whereas if you're trying to be analytical and explain why a marginal tax rate of X percent is really damaging to the economy and it needs to be this percent and micromanaging it. I mean, you can't, as a politician, make that case. If you're trying to win and influence voters to come your way, AOC plays it great, I think. So does Bernie. Again, I talked about Bernie in a previous podcast. I'm no fan of his policies, but I respect the hell out of him because he's so principled and he makes his issues moral. His cause is moral, which then makes it about justice. But the thing is, is that justice, we, depending on the lens you look through, what's just to one person is totally unjust to another. Because we all have different moral codes. We all have different points of view. So in the case of Bernie wants to tax people at higher and higher percentages, because that's, Sometimes you hear people say tax justice. You'll hear people say tax justice as a moral cause to raise taxes. But on the other hand, what they're doing is by raising taxes, they're taking money and resources away from people, money that they didn't even earn, and taking it away. Many would say that's not just. That is not justice. In fact, it's the opposite. Some might say it's theft. So it makes you wonder what truly is just and what really is a fair share. 
when you let the politicians define it, then it becomes politicized, it becomes a football, and then it's never really defined. It's, it's only played as leverage, as sort of someone taking the moral high ground to try to make those other people look like they are liars, cheaters, and stealers. But then it makes you wonder who really are the liars, cheaters, and stealers if they are the ones that are demanding to coercively take other people's money in greater and greater sums and then tell them that's their fair share without actually even proving it. That's lying, cheating, and stealing if you look at it from a different lens. So to me, this is really interesting, this whole notion of justice. Again, I try to make these podcasts about bigger ideas. I mean, I, you know, we can rant about politics as much as we want, and that's sometimes fun. But I want to make this really about bigger issues. And I, I, I challenge people to, to bring forward their version of justice and what's just to them, because it may not be just to the next guy. Um, now, let's take a quick look. You know, we're closing in on an hour. I got a few more things to share. So the infrastructure bill, Biden's big infrastructure bill that now, by the way, Bezos is supporting. Again, no surprise, Bezos trying to look like the angel, the do-gooder, the Mother Teresa. Bezos now supports this. And I think there are legitimate reasons for infrastructure. I mean, gee whiz, we can look at our schools here in Poway. They have legitimate needs. We can look at the sewer drains and storm drains throughout San Diego County. There are legitimate infrastructure needs. We can look at the so-called crumbling roads and bridges. There are legitimate needs for infrastructure, no doubt. But Bezos says he supports it. He's not going to pay much for it, right? He's supporting the corporate income tax hike to make him look like a good guy. But you know that his army of accountants and lawyers and everything else are going to manipulate the thing down where he pays the least amount possible. And so are you. If you play the game and you hire an an accountant to help you with your taxes, they're going to help you pay the least amount possible. Nothing wrong with that. You're just complying with the law. But the crazy part of this is, is now they're redefining what infrastructure really is. We used to always think infrastructure was roads and bridges and dams and sewer systems and, and um, broadband internet. We could make an argument that that's infrastructure. Usually it's those physical, big capital intensive projects that makes society sort of work. But now they're starting to change the definition. Now they're starting to say that corporate welfare is a form of infrastructure because that's what's in Biden's bill. They're going to subsidize all these companies to develop all this green technology. Now, by the way, I drive electric vehicle. I have solar. I love this technology, but I don't think taxpayers should be paying for it. You know, I don't think that's right. But. Now Biden wants to give more corporate welfare to these companies to develop more batteries and more solar and more electric vehicles. And again, I love that technology. But is that infrastructure? When you're just working to subsidize corporations, when you're socializing the investment, but privatizing the profits? That's what our progressive friends have been arguing against for the longest time. Socializing the losses and privatizing the profits. It's essentially what Biden's doing. 
And then there's other categories like child care and care for the elderly. Now, we can talk about the pros and cons of that and who should pay for it. And we can have that discussion, but don't call it infrastructure. Now, suddenly there's social infrastructure and people infrastructure. Suddenly the word infrastructure no longer means what infrastructure is, but yet they tell you, you got to pay your fair share. Well, wait a minute. (laughs) You know, there's people that don't have children at all. And yet they're being told it's their fair share to pay for the childcare needs of someone else. How is that just? How is that a fair share? It's not. But that's how they spin it. Now, you know, yeah, like they, they need to rebuild a bridge. There's a bridge that connects Cincinnati, Ohio, and then a city in Kentucky. What city is it? Is it Lexington? It might be Lexington. Apparently, that bridge needs a lot of work, a lot of help. Okay, that's fair. A lot of this stuff was built decades ago, and a lot of this stuff needs major upgrades. That's good. And we can talk about that, and let's talk about ways to pay for that. You ever notice, by the way, that politicians love to talk about infrastructure when they're building new things. When they build a new bridge or a new dam or there's a new freeway, man, there's ribbon-cutting ceremonies. It's a big deal. But when it comes time to, like, fixing the infrastructure— they never do. In fact, they, there's plenty of money to fund the infrastructure that they need right now. The federal government brought in over $3.5 trillion in revenue in 2019. Now, I'm not sure what it is in 2020 because everything went sideways with COVID. But this infrastructure bill is $1.9 trillion. And frankly, I don't know, half or two-thirds is actually infrastructure. Some people say it's less than half. But even if you assume all of its infrastructure and you take $1.9 trillion, it's over eight years, it's $237 billion a year. That's less than, that's less than, uh, like it's like 6.7% of $3.5 trillion in revenue. You don't think the federal government could figure out a way to save three point? Uh, can, could save 6.7% of the budget? Clearly, infrastructure is really important. They could, they could, they have plenty of money for infrastructure. It's just they spend it on all these other things. They spend like the the Afghanistan war. There's already been, by some estimates, and I think this is low, nine hundred and seventy five billion dollars has been spent on that war over the last twenty years, and in twenty nineteen it was fifty two billion. Some years a lot more than that. Why in the hell are we building infrastructure in Afghanistan rather than building it here in America? There's plenty of money in the budget for infrastructure. It's just that they spend it on all kinds of other things. I mean, a great example is look at a map that shows where all of the all the counties and, you know, it's a heat map. So red is hot and blue is not the, the counties that have the highest annual income on a median basis or on a per capita basis. You know where they're located? Are they around Silicon Valley? And yes, some of them are there. But the top ones are all clustered around Washington, D.C. I think this is unbelievable. Why are government employees the ones getting so much money? It used to be that a government job didn't pay you as much, but you got a really attractive benefits package and there was greater job security. Well, now it's gone to the point where they're getting paid a ton. That's why we're seeing that at the local level at Poway Unified. 
there's a lot of people making a ton of money, way more than the median income in the, in the, in the county. There are lots of teachers making over six figures a year. You know, good on them if they're worth it. Administrators making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Unbelievable. So at the federal level, I mean, there's been, there's so many agencies there that frankly, they don't even need to exist. They could be just eliminated. Department of Commerce, loaded with corporate welfare and highly paid government employees. Imagine if you, instead of going back to the well and demanding more corporate taxes, which by the way, are actually paid not by corporations, they're paid by customers, employees, and shareholders, because people pay taxes, not companies. Rather than going to the well asking for more money, why not cut spending on the lower priorities? But they never do, because government doesn't think that way. They keep increasing the cost, and then they demand that you pay your fair share, even though you may oppose what they're doing. But you have to pay your fair share, and then they get to define what fair is and what your share is. So the whole notion of justice, I mean, justice is supposed to be, and this is the definition, the quality of being just, righteousness, equitableness, or moral rightness. To uphold the justice of a cause. Yeah, justice is about doing what's right. Now, another way I like to look at justice is, is getting what you deserve. And in a criminal perspective, that makes a ton of sense, right? Like if you literally are a liar, cheater, and stealer, and you're harming people, or you're a murderer, rape, theft, you know, any violation of other people's rights, you should get what you deserve, And that may be a very long prison sentence. That's justice. I think we would all agree on that. And we could debate like the length of time. But getting what you deserve is justice. So then it makes you wonder, like, there are a lot of people that may be benefiting from a lot of these government programs that maybe don't deserve it. You know, should a wife-beating drunk be able to get more money for childcare? I think you can make an argument that that wouldn't be just, wouldn't be fair. It certainly wouldn't be fair to require other people to pay their so-called fair share so the wife beating drunk could get childcare at the expense of someone else. Justice? Is that right? I don't think so. But that's what the system does. The system rewards that. Now, How much should people make? You should get what you deserve, right? Now, some people say, well, these companies don't pay enough and they're, it's slave labor. They need to pay more. And yeah, you'd hope people, you'd hope companies would pay more. But if you don't think they're paying enough, you could always go somewhere else and find a better job or go into business yourself. And then really the only ones really holding you back is you. So you can do what you think is just. You have options. And then some people think they deserve a heck of a lot more money and they go out into the open market and they find out no one's willing, willing to pay them what they think they earn, what they think they, they deserve. If you think you deserve, let me see this in sports all the time. If you think a basketball player deserves, I'll make up a number, $10 million a year because he's a great basketball player or a great baseball player. I mean, or, you know, pick your athlete. 
But if no one's willing to pay them $10 million a year, if the best offer they can get is $7 million a year, then are they really worth 10? I think no. You're only, your worth is what someone's willing to pay you. And in that case, your value is $7 million. So back into the real world of the average person, if you're making minimum wage and you think you deserve more, then go to work for Amazon, make $15 an hour. Or go to work somewhere else and make more. But if you can't get any of those jobs, then maybe you don't deserve it. I know it sounds harsh, but apply that to a middle-class salary. Like if, if, you, if you're earning, I'll make up a number, $50,000 a year, and you think you deserve 80000 and you're angry with your employer because they're not paying you what you think you're worth, well, you could go quit and go find another job and see if someone else will pay 80000 And if they will, if someone will pay you eighty grand, then then you deserve 80000 because that's what the market's telling you. But if you can't find a job, then maybe the best you can do is 65000 Well, then that's what you deserve. That's what your worth is. Because you're only as valuable as what other person's willing to pay you. That's getting what you deserve. Because what you deserve is what you agreed upon with your employer. In my opinion, that's just. Another way to look at justice from the perspective of government is just pay for what you use. Pay, payment for services rendered. It's kind of like that example of the family with eight kids and they're all going to public school. You know, that's one way to look at it as justice. Then they should pay eight times more than a person with only one child. But again, the system rewards it in the opposite direction. The system gives tax credits to people with children. And in fact, gives tax credits to marry people. So single people pay higher rates on an effective basis. It's, it's nuts. The whole system is upside down in so many ways, but yet they keep clamoring for tax fairness, tax justice. But a lot of times they just want to make what's already unjust, more unjust. And they claim it's your fair share when you never agreed to that, nor can they prove that it's fair or your share. It's funny how this all works. So I don't know. I think this whole notion of tax justice is just a way to demonize other people. It's a way to play the political game. We see this call for unity from our friends on the left, our progressive friends, but unity is a two-way street. A lot of times we're seeing the opposite, create more division, come together on commonly held ideals and principles. But a lot of times they seek, they seek principles and morals where there's a sharp division. Because that's how politicians play the game. It's, 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 it's unbelievable. Okay. Padre game starts in 13 minutes. Actually, 18 minutes. 3.35 it'll start. Padres against Pittsburgh. Who's going today? I think Darvish is pitching today. This will be good. Um, got a couple of closing quotes. Again, I always welcome your thoughts and comments on the live stream. Feel free to type those in and share them. Um, you know, we've been... We do the live stream every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at two o'clock. And some days we have more people than others. Today is a modest live stream group. I'll tell you what, we get a lot of people that download these episodes across all the podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts and Pandora and Google Podcasts and Spotify. Lots of views 
of these podcast episodes on YouTube, lots of views of these podcast episodes on Facebook. And I thank you all for your support. And there was a really great comment one of our listeners shared. It was Mike Devine. And I, I, I should have quoted him on this, but I'll paraphrase. And I really appreciate this. He, he said that, that I try to make this podcast as accessible as I can to other people. And while there may be categories where we disagree, we don't demonize them over it. We respect that we may just agree to disagree. We may try to talk it out and write, maybe try to understand why the other person feels the way they do, but we don't beat them over the head and try to make them feel like an inferior person because of what they believe. So I, you know, I, I thank you for that, Mike. I appreciate that. I, that's something I really strive for in this podcast is to make it a community forum. Okay, I got a few quotes here all about justice. Benjamin Franklin, one of our founding fathers, right? Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Great quote. This is why, like, I don't know, I'm pro-choice on abortion. I've talked about this. Of course, I'm not a woman, right? I'm not pregnant. I, you know, I'm not affected whether or not abortion is legal or illegal. But I see other people that are experiencing injustice. I see people like Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Eric Garner that are killed by the police. I could say, ah, they didn't kill me. Or I could say, you know what? I'm not black. I don't need to worry about this. Um, Black Lives Matter thing, because I'm not black. But I do. I mean, if there's injustice, wherever it is, even if it doesn't affect you, you got to call it out. We need to be outraged at cases of injustice. So good on you, Benjamin Franklin. Martin Luther King, I've always loved this quote from him, and he's had various versions of this quote. A unjust law is no law at all. And that's true. Uh, There are certain laws that are frankly immoral. They're in, they're unjust. They're wrong. They're morally wrong. Some of these laws. I mean, we can make a comment about the Georgia voting laws is something we talked about in a recent podcast. There are people that will go out there and purposely violate unjust laws. And they're prepared to live with the consequences. I think the war on drugs is a lot of that. Um, yeah. an unjust law is really no law at all. It's just oppression. That's what it is. And so good on you, Martin Luther King. Now, here's another one, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. True peace is not merely the absence of tension. It is the presence of justice. That's a good one, too. Peace, we can subtract tension, we subtract war, but the absence of war isn't peace. I mean, peace needs to be something that is stable and long-lasting and kind of, for lack of a better term, sort of built into the infrastructure of the overall society or culture. And in this case, I mean infrastructure. I mean the core ideas and morality of a culture. That That's really peace. And ultimately, that's really what justice is all about, is when you have that, where people are being treated fairly, when people are getting what they deserve, 
Yeah, fortunately, there's a there's differences of opinion on what people deserve and what's fair. So the utopia of perfect justice is just so damn hard because we're all going to have different levels of agreement. That's why I think politicians that play the game at a moral level, I give them credit, even if I disagree with them, like AOC and Bernie, because that's how we can influence the rest of society. That's how we can find common values at that level first before they implement law and policy. I think that's important. That has to happen. And here's the final quote on justice. And it, I don't know, it doesn't actually mention the word justice, but it's all about it. It's from Ayn Rand. Since men are born tabula rasa, which means blank slate, right? Since men are born tabula rasa, both cognitively and morally, a rational man regards strangers as innocent until proven guilty. Yeah, what a great concept, right? Innocent until proven guilty. Unfortunately, so many things in society are guilty until proven innocent. By the way, we're seeing that with COVID. We see that with checkpoints and TSA and every, all, all these other things. There's guilty before innocence. But a rational man regards strangers as innocent until proven guilty and grants them that initial good will in the name of their human potential. So good on you, Ayn Rand. She goes on to say, after that... He judges them according to the moral character they have actualized. So that kind of goes back to Martin Luther King, you know, judge my children not on the color of their skin, but on the content of their character. Yeah, people can be judged on how they behave. No doubt about that. If he finds them guilty of major evils, I'm continuing with Ayn Rand. If he finds them guilty of major evils, his goodwill is replaced by contempt and moral condemnation. Yeah. That's what we're seeing with Derek Chauvin after he killed George Floyd. If one values life, one cannot value its destroyers. Yeah. If he finds them to be virtuous, he grants them personal, individual value and appreciation in a proportion to their virtues. So that's justice, right? It's kind of how we see their moral character. And when they violate certain morals or principles— they should be called out on that, and that is a violation or a lack of justice. It just, it's just so darn hard because, A, we don't always agree on what's just or what's right, and then, B, the politicians play it in such a way that they never really define it or are really explicit on what they believe is right and why. That's like the whole fair share argument. It's a political football. It's undefined on purpose. It's never, there's never any proof, you know, like a geometry when we did the proofs where you actually logically showcase why that problem, or I can't remember in geometry, why that was true, why that equation was true, why that geometric model was true. You would prove it. In the case of fair share, they never prove it. They just use it as a weapon. And the left does it far more effectively than the right. In some cases, the right just gives up and goes along with it. And that's what I think Jeff Bezos is doing at Amazon. But really, he's just saying he's going along with it. But really, behind the curtain, he's going to play the game, play the least amount he can, just like you do. 
and try to virtue signal to the best of his ability to get on the good side of the politicians so they don't break him up and play the game in such a way that he can apply pressure on his competitors because he's already earning paying $15 an hour. He can put the pressure on his competition to pay $15 an hour, which will squeeze them. He'll call for the higher corporate tax rate, which he's already, already been able to manipulate and pay very little, where his competitors may not have that leverage, that capability to manipulate the system or play the game as effectively as he can. So he ends up looking like Mother Teresa, but behind the scenes, you know, he's playing the game. And I don't blame him for it at all. I mean, I, I kind of blame him for the virtue signaling. But the fact he's playing the game to win, I have no argument with him at all. I do the same thing. In fact, we have two electric cars and we have solar in our home. And we do so because those are the rules of the game as they exist. And I don't agree with those subsidies. I don't think other people should be subsidizing my car. But I look at it from the perspective I'm getting my own tax dollars back. It's a way for me to play the game. And we can debate what's justice and what's fair share. But sometimes when you get down to it, you just got to play the game based on the rules as they exist. And I hope you're doing that. Bezos is. A lot of people are. And there's a lot of people. Unfortunately, they're not. And they're the ones that are going to they're going to lose. They're the ones that are going to be a pawn in someone else's game. And they're going to be sacrificed. It's a shame. Okay. Wow. We've been going for an hour and 21 minutes. Let's wrap it up. This is the John Riley Project. It's episode number 223. We talked about Amazon, Jeff Bezos. We talked about justice. That was the key kind of moral ideal in all of this that I tried to weave through most of the podcasts. We talked about um, higher taxes um, on the corporations. We talked about infrastructure. We talked about Joe Biden's bill. And maybe next time we'll talk a little more local stuff here in Poway or in San Diego. I try to weave that in. There was just wasn't enough stuff to talk about. So if you're one of our local supporters here in Poway, if there's a local topic you want to talk about, let me know and we'll talk about it because there's enough people talking about national issues. I'm one of a million. There are very few people that are talking about local issues in Poway, probably count them on one hand. And there are very few people that are even talking about issues in San Diego County. So I encourage more local conversation, especially if we can weave it in to a bigger idea, like in this case, justice. And those make the best conversations. So thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Have a great day. Go Padres. And we'll see you Wednesday at two. Goodbye, friends. Mm-hmm.